Did Jesus really rise again from the dead? Great question. At 2100 hours on the 1st of January 2014, 9.8 million people, including myself, sat down with a glass of mulled wine, a piece of staling Christmas cake, and watched wide-eyed as after an agonising two-year wait, we were finally able to answer that question. How did he do it? How did Sherlock jump off St. Bart's Hospital and survive? How did he fake it? The internet was abuzz with ideas from the sublime to the brilliant to the downright odd, but as promised, we were finally shown how it was done. As Sherlock said to John Watson later on, it's just a magic trick, John. And as we look at the resurrection today, as we seek to answer the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? In my experience, this is how many people view it. It can't be true. It must at least be a trick. I don't know how many of you here are convinced by Christianity. I'm guessing by the fact that you're here, you're you're intrigued by it. Um, But I reckon that even if you are particularly open-minded about Christianity or the teachings of Christ and the Bible, the good things that he said, I would wager that one of the major stumbling blocks for you is the resurrection. You can believe that Jesus was a man who existed... Um, that he really walked the earth, that he was a good teacher, that what he did was good, but to believe that he rose again from the dead, that's perhaps one step too far. Or perhaps you're at the other end of the spectrum as you approach Christianity. Christianity is nothing but a boring, out-of-date, possibly harmful distraction that was spawned out of a book of meaningless nonsense written over thousands of years ago by too many people in an age too far away where it is too irrelevant to have any meaning in today's society and the fact that a Christian's belief system seems to hinge on someone rising themselves from the dead only compounds your feeling that Christianity is in the realm of the delusional. It is just as plausible as Sherlock Holmes launching himself of a hospital roof and walking away unscathed. It's just a magic trick, John. Or it could very well be that you're none of these. Christianity is maybe something you simply haven't considered. The resurrection is perhaps not something you've really heard of, and all this is really quite new, and that's great. I really hope tonight is helpful in some ways. You seek to draw some conclusions, some opinions about who Jesus Christ is wherever you stand. But for many, many people, the resurrection is so implausible, it literally beggars belief. In fact, it begs the question, why do Christians bother to believe it? And that is a great question. And before we delve into looking at the evidence for the resurrection tonight, we really do need to address that first. Can we sidestep the issue of the resurrection altogether? Is it possible for us to do away with the resurrection and still keep the central theme of the Bible intact? On the face of it, that might be a lot easier. Is the resurrection just a distraction? Why do Christians need to defend it? Well, we can't do away with the resurrection because it is central to everything we as Christians believe. Jesus claims of himself several times in the New Testament three fundamental things. One, that he is God. Two, that he will die die for and save mankind. Three, that in three days after his death, he would take up his life again. In the eyewitness account of Mark, one of the gospel books, Jesus says the following to his disciples. 
He says, we are going to go up into Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that's the name Jesus gives for himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise. This is one of the many claims he gives along those lines about himself. You see, in that... Jesus rising from the dead proves he is God. Because if Jesus does not rise from the dead, he is not God. What he has claimed just there will be completely false. It is a lie. If he is not God, then the Bible is found to be completely false. It is a lie. In fact, the Bible itself makes this very point. And Paul, an apostle, a writer of the New Testament, says, if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. He then goes on to say that we, Christians, are to be pitied above all creatures. In other words, if the resurrection did not happen, then Christianity is dead, and Christians are fools. The Bible itself says that. Paul goes on to say this about the resurrection. He says this, For I delivered to you, he's talking to a church, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have since fallen asleep. Paul is saying, for the Christian, the resurrection is of first importance and is all wrapped up in accordance with the scriptures. That means the entire Bible points towards the resurrection and hinges on this being true. So we cannot sidestep the issue. Christians, in fact, are bound by the resurrection. It is a pivotal point to the Christian faith. So, if we cannot sidestep the issue, then we have to confront it, which is exactly what we'll do now, together, by looking at the evidence. And in doing that, we have to visit two areas. First, we have to visit three facts that the Bible presents us about the resurrection, and secondly, we have to visit five theories of how it could have been faked and see if they have any credibility. In other words, is it true or is it a magic trick, John? On the back of this, we then need to come to a conclusion. Um, But first, let's examine the evidence through looking at our three facts. Feel free to write these down. I think you've got space in your sheets to do that if you want to follow them along. Fact one, the empty tomb. Now, Jesus was a well-known man, and his burial site would have been known by all kinds of people. We read in the book of Matthew this, this, these words. Joseph of Arimathea took the body wrapped it in a clean cloth, and laid it in his own new tomb. The Gospel writer Mark later says that this man, Joseph of Arimathea, was a prominent member of the council. Now, giving a name to the man who took Jesus from the cross and designating his title is extremely important. Patrick Zuckerman, who is a Christian apologist, says this, It would have been destructive for the writers to invent a man of such prominence name him specifically, and designate the tomb site, since eyewitnesses would have easily discredited the author's fallacious claims. So we see um, that Jesus was buried, and by someone who was well-known and verifiable. But what about the tomb being empty? Jewish and Roman sources both testify to an empty tomb. 
In the book of Matthew, chapter 28, Matthew specifically states that the chief priests invented the story that the disciples stole the body. There will be no need for this fabrication if the tomb had not been empty. It is also interesting to note that not one single historian in the 1st and 2nd century AD wrote against the empty tomb or the finding of a body. Tom Anderson, a high-ranking US lawyer, says, let's assume that the written accounts of Christ's appearances to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicised, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. So it's fair and safe to assume that Jesus, a man well known to have existed from other sources as well other than the Bible, actually died. He was placed in a tomb, the location of which was not hidden, and by the man who owned it, the name and title of whom was well known, and that the tomb was found to be emptied soon after the burial. Fact two, the Apostles' Transformation. It is recorded in the Gospels, those are the eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus, that while Jesus was on trial, the apostles, that is his disciples, his closest friends, who later founded the early church, it says that these friends deserted Jesus out of fear. Yet ten out of the eleven apostles died as martyrs, believing Christ rose from the dead. What accounts for their transformation from men who were petrified into men willing to die horrific deaths for their message? Let's take an example. Peter himself, one of the, the really well-known friends of Jesus, his closest friend, was, also af- was so afraid of the backlash of Jesus' death that he denied three times with curses that he even knew Jesus. This same man went on to preach the gospel of Jesus and his resurrection with boldness and was later crucified. All the other disciples have very similar stories. He is just one. It is impossible to think, therefore, that not one of these men would have not recanted about the resurrection of Jesus if it were not true. Fact three, the apostles' preaching. What the apostles were preaching and where the apostles were preaching has a direct impact on whether or not the resurrection is plausible. It's important to note that the apostles began preaching the resurrection in Jerusalem, the very city in which Jesus was crucified. All the evidence was there for everyone to investigate. People could, and I'm betting would have, walked to the tomb just a few miles away to take a look. When we think of legends, we we always think of legends taking root in foreign lands. That's very often the case. And in countries far away, centuries after the events have happened. And discrediting these legends is always really difficult, since the facts are so hard to verify. However, in this case, the preaching regarding the resurrection occurs in the city of the event immediately after it happened. Every possible fact could have been investigated thoroughly. If the resurrection were false, it would have been quenched beyond all reasonable doubt and with ease. So those are our three facts. Those are the things that we have to get past when we're looking at the resurrection. But what about the resurrection from another angle? Let's look at the five theories people present as to how it could have been staged. Very much like the the 13 possibilities that Sherlock had to get himself off St. Bart's Hospital. What do we have? Our five theories. Theory number one, the wrong tomb theory. It says in the Bible that it is the women who found the tomb first, and they find it early in the morning. 
And in Mark 16, we read this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Could it be that due to the emotion and the semi-darkness, they got the wrong tomb? They are so excited about seeing it empty, they go back and tell their disciples, thus we have the lie that we know today. Well, there are several problems with this. One, it is inconceivable that the men would not have corrected them when they went to check only a few minutes later, which is what we read in the Bible accounts. And two, as we saw earlier, the tomb's location was practically broadcast. Even the opponents knew where it was. They would certainly have shown that to be false. Theory two, the hallucination theory. This theory states that the resurrection occurs simply in the minds of the disciples. Dr. William McNeil, a non-Christian historian, states this view. He says, the Roman authorities in Jerusalem arrested and crucified Jesus. But soon afterwards, the dispirited apostles gathered in an upstairs room and suddenly felt again the heartwarming presence of their master. This seemed absolutely convincing evidence that Jesus' death on the cross had not been the end but the beginning. The apostles bubbled over with excitement and tried to explain to all who had listened to all that had happened the resurrection story thus being initiated. Now, I am not a psychologist. There are some in the church. Please grab them afterwards and uh, confirm this. But psychologists agree that for the same hallucination to be seen by so many people at exactly the same time in exactly the same way is impossible. In fact, as we read earlier, um, 1 Corinthians says that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, making this point even more implausible. Theory three, the swoon theory. This theory states that Jesus didn't actually die, but he swooned on the cross and walked out of the tomb three days later. Now, there are many things wrong with this. For starters, the Romans who crucified Jesus were experts at killing. This was their job. They would have known if he were dead or not without question. And with what was recorded as a weight of 80 pounds worth of oils and embalming fluid blocking the pores of Jesus' body, all tightly wrapped in ceremonial garb, he would have physically suffocated in the tomb, notwithstanding the fact that he would have been incredibly weak from over several hours of torture. A 19th century historian, David Strauss, an opponent to Christianity, who wanted to disprove the resurrection, says this. It is impossible that a being who had stolen half-dead out of the sepulchre, who crept about weak and ill, wanting medical treatment, who required bandaging, strengthening and indulgence, and who still, at last, yielded to his sufferings, eventually, could have given the disciples the impression that he was a conqueror over death and the grave, the prince of life, an impression that would lay at the very bottom of the apostles' ministry. The Bible account also tells of Jesus' thigh being split open with a spear, with the rushing of blood and water flowing out of his body. And we're also told that the Romans didn't need to break his legs. They did with the other um, thieves on the cross because they, were definite, uh, they hadn't died. Jesus didn't need that because he had long since died. It's fair to say Jesus was definitely dead. Theory four, the stolen body theory. What about the idea that the Jews and the Romans simply stole the body or removed it for safekeeping? The big question to this is, why? The Romans were desperate for Christianity to die. It undermined everything that they stood for in terms of the empire and Caesar being supreme. All they had to do was display the body and Christianity would have finished in a heartbeat. 
Similarly for the Jews, they had a vested interest to prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They despised Christianity. Jesus was crucified with their aiding because he claimed to be God. He was a blasphemer. Again, it is inconceivable to think that either camp would have stolen the body and kept it secret. But theory five, the soldiers fall asleep and the disciples stole the body theory. Not very pithy, but work with me. This, at first glance, is quite plausible. In fact, Matthew, the Gospel writer, tells us that chief priests at the time tried to force this as a theory. He writes, When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were sleeping. It seems that the resurrection had taken so much ground that the plans were already afoot to disprove it. This account in Matthew gives the resurrection some credibility, and Matthew doesn't refute it, possibly because it doesn't need to due to the following reasons. One, if the soldiers were sleeping, how did they know that it was the disciples that had stolen the body? Two, how could the disciples sneak past the soldiers and then physically move a two-ton stone up an incline in absolute silence? Three, the stone that guarded um, the tomb would have been sealed with a Roman seal as it was placed under Roman guard. This was normal Roman practice. Breaking it was an immediate death sentence. And remember, the disciples were petrified at this point, to the point of denying Christ in public. They would never have had the fortitude to do that. Four, the Roman guards would never have fallen asleep. They would have been killed by their superiors for doing so. They wouldn't even have lied about it. And five, finally in the Gospel of John, the grave clothes were found, and I quote, lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. There was not enough time for the disciples to sneak past the guards, roll away the stone, unwrap the body, rewrap it in their wrappings and fold the headpiece neatly next to the linen. In a robbery, the men would have flung the garments down in disorder and fled in fear of detection. So those are the three truths you need to look at. Those are the five theories that people say happened, but we have to come to a conclusion. Well, after everything we've looked at today, I think it's fair to say that we have to seriously consider that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, what would Sherlock Holmes say at this point? When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. But that's it, I hear you scream silently. It's just impossible. People don't rise again from the dead. And this is kind of the point. It means that Jesus must be God. The only man who could do this impossible feat was the God who created the world, the God who is all-powerful and perfectly good. This is why the resurrection is necessary, to show that Jesus was God. Now, I could claim with strong rhetoric and fervour that I will die as a sacrifice for all of you in this room and I could do that. It is possible for a man or woman to die on behalf of a lot of people. I wouldn't stake your life on me doing that. I'm a bit of a wimp, but someone would. And people have. But I cannot say I'm going to die for you and rise again from the dead. I could, but I will be found out to be a fraud very quickly. And this is what distinguishes Jesus from everyone else. He completes what he says will happen to him by bodily and physically dying and by bodily and physically rising again, proving that he is God. But this leads to another question. So what? Even if this were true, what does it really matter? 
I think it matters a great deal. Because you see, if Jesus rose again from the dead, then he is God. And if he is God, then everything he claims about himself in the Bible is true. And what did he claim? He said this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live, even though he dies. He also says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. The resurrection leaves you with a decision to make. The only way to God the Father is through this man, Jesus. Indeed, the only way to a life of eternity after we die is through this man, Jesus, because he defeated death for us. And eternity is not a sitting on clouds, trilling harps and wearing togas. It is spent with this God who loved us so much that he was willing to become a man, identify with us in our suffering, live the perfect, sinless life, to die for all the rubbish that you and I have accumulated over our lifetimes and to rise again for us to show that there is a way that mankind that is so bad can know and live with a God who is so good. And this is the whole point of this talk. Because isn't it true to say that if there was one thing that we all secretly wish to be true, it would be that death was not the end. Damien Hirst, the renowned artist, brilliantly says this, Why do I feel so important when I'm not really? Nothing is important and everything is important. I don't know why I'm here, but I'm glad I am here. I'd rather be here than not. I'm going to die, but I want to live forever. I can't escape that fact and I can't let go of that desire. Hearst is reiterating the feeling of when life is going well and I don't want it to finish. I want it to have real meaning and purpose. Death gets in the way of that. But it's not just when life is going well, but when life sucks, which may affect us a lot more. Do we not wish it then to be true that there is life after death? When we're standing at the graveside burying a loved one, or just wondering what the point of life is in our suffering, is there not something in all of this that very much resonates that says that there must be more to life than this? C.S. Lewis, a Christian Oxford Don, says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy... The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The Bible tells us we were made for another world. We were made for a relationship and a life with a good God for an eternity where there is no crying or sorrow or pain, where it is said that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Jesus deals death a body blow when he rises from the grave. But as we see him in the accounts of his life, standing at the tomb of a loved family friend called Lazarus who had just died, we don't see Jesus merely shaking a fist in defiance, in cold-hearted defiance at death. We see him kneeling on the ground and weeping bitterly because he understands that death is painful, demoralising and dehumanising. And so then in death, the most horrifying and painful thing we experience, Jesus fully identifies with us both in the experience of his friends, but by actually doing something about it, by going through it himself and defeating it in the process. It also means that Jesus Christ is alive today. He is a continuous source of love and life for those who believe him. There is no shrine to Jesus. There is no place that we go to to look at a grave. Our founder is alive today. 
Jesus provides the way in which this new life is possible through the resurrection. He does not promise the perfect life on earth once you know him, but he does promise the perfect life fully and finally when we are fully and finally raised with him. I compel you to look further into this Jesus, seeing how he's loved you, how he's died for you, how he rose again for you, how he made it possible for you to know a good God for eternity. What have you got to lose? Jesus says anyone who comes to him will not be turned away.